Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, unpaid internships getting you down? How about an apprenticeship? Plus, while we don't encourage drowning one's sorrow in alcohol, can anyone else use a stiff drink? I'm going to get mine, and it's going to be some rum in honor of National Caribbean American Heritage Month. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, joined by producer Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ross. Hi, Ashley. Oh, Ross. <laughs> what's going on with you, bruh? <laughs> oh, what's going on with everyone? Well, did you hear the news? I've heard all the news, Ross. I'm on the Internet. Why, Anthony Kennedy? Why now? Why, Ashley? I don't know why. Somebody's going to have to ask that man why. I don't know what his life is, and I don't know why he made the decision that he made right now to step down from the Supreme Court when we need him most. But, you know what, I think that, you know, this can't fall at the feet of Anthony Kennedy, ultimately. No, I think we're all to blame. It's just a little disheartening. We're all to blame. Uh, Shereen asks me why. Shereen, producer in the studio. Hi, Shereen. Because we saw this coming. We knew that Anthony Kennedy was at the end of his rope. And we didn't seem to be that activated as progressives to mm. vote in a president that we knew was going to have two, at least two, Supreme Court picks. Yeah, absolutely. And so now we're left with this with this mess. Not that any, Anthony Kennedy was any great shakes these late <laughs> months. No. But no. still, you know, I think we can only go down into deeper darkness from here. No, I, I'd say there's some light at the end of Please, the tunnel. Please, tell me. Tell me what that light is. I think, you know, light, light at the end of the tunnel for me is potential. And it's looking at the potential for the future. And I think that if we look at where we are now and decide that it's all for naught, then that's what we deserve. Mm. But if we fight for what we want and for what we believe in and what we think this country might be, could be, has the potential to be, then it won't all be for nothing, at the very least. I admire your optimism. Hey, well, you know. Black change? queer woman in America, I do what I can. <laughs> yeah, well, what else is there besides <laughs> optimism? Should we shift gears? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Shift them, Ross. All right. I don't know if we have a whole lot of time to talk about this, but there's a report today. Huffington Post put out an article saying that only a handful of luxury buildings in, I think, mostly Manhattan are responsible for half of the city's CO2 pollution, mm -hmm. which is kind of crazy to me. And, of course, this piece was kind of framed around, well, the, most of those properties are owned by Trump and Kushner. Oh, yeah, of course. absolutely. I don't know that I've ever been in those buildings. I can only imagine what goes on, maybe all the fountains they have, all the water that they're pumping through, the long showers that people take, which has nothing to do, I guess, with CO2 necessarily, unless they're mm -hmm. heating that hot water all the time. Uh, lights being left on, chandeliers. Who knows what is happening? Chandeliers? Who? Yeah, well, they must have lots of chandeliers. Yeah, right? I'm certain they have chandeliers. Chandeliers are such a rich people thing. I absolutely think that this is one of those things, you know what I mean? People, and especially in this country, generally believe that the more money they make, the more resources are theirs. To just consume. <laughs> to yeah. consume. Bigger period. car. Bigger car, bigger pool, bigger, bigger, more, more everything. I earned it. I worked hard for it. How much can I take? Right. If I don't take it, somebody else is going to take it, and I'm not going to get what I earned. Like, I mean, that's what we pump into people, and yeah. that's what you get when this you is do the that. Piece of my carbon pie that I'm going to gobble up. Absolutely. Gobble up some more. Let's shift gears one more time. One more time. I know we talked about this the other day, but your Tess Holiday piece, you got some mm -hmm. response on Twitter. 
I want you to talk to me about that, Ashley. Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't just on Twitter. It was on Instagram as well. Right. And it was essentially people reaching out. And, you know, even though the article was about the concerned troll, which is the person who comes to your page and mm -hmm. sees that you are, you know, a non-thin person being happy and decides it's their job to correct that. And let's <laughs> just, just remind everybody, Tess Holliday, she is the A plus-size model body and positive body positive activist. activist. And I wrote the cover story on her for Self Magazine mm -hmm. this month which is what brought these people to my page. I'm a size 18, you know what I mean? And that's not an easy size to dress. It's not an easy size to be, to be perfectly honest, in terms of the way the world reacts to your body. Women who are bigger than me have it worse. Mm -hmm. People who are bigger than me have it worse. So you said people reached out, but can it be called a reach out when it's more like a... A punch? I mean, reaching out to say something messed up, it's its still a reach out. It's mm -hmm. just gross and self-serving and says a lot more about them than what they what, what said they about saying? me. That I was glorifying obesity, that I was spreading the idea that women with a certain kind of body should be unsatisfied with that even <laughs> even when they're healthy or like that there's no way that someone could be my size and be healthy mm -hmm. um it's just a lot of people i believe who punish themselves for the shape and size of their own bodies and when they see me happy and not punishing myself in my body or when they see that with tests they feel like we're getting away with something that they don't get away with even if it's self-imposed. And I just quickly had to let those people know that A, I'm not the one, and B, what I do with my body, how I look and how I present myself to the world is none of their business. Mm -hmm. I'm a very happy person and mm -hmm. I'm okay with that and I'm allowed to be happy no matter what I look like. Here, here. So we got to get on with the show. We do have to get on with the show. We have so much to talk about coming up. We'll talk about the growth of apprenticeship opportunities in the city. I wanted to be an apprentice to a shoemaker once. You wanted to be a shoemaker. I did. That's yeah. We need shoemakers in this country. Me. We need shoemakers. There are no more shoemakers in this country. You're right. We need cobblers. We um, you said I you wanted, wanted to be. I wanted to be a blacksmith. I wanted to be a blacksmith's apprentice because I basically wanted to play with fire. So. Let's not do that, kids. Coming up, we'll have this conversation. I don't know. Like, sorry, what else should I say? We're That's just it. Gonna have a That's it. We're going to have a conversation with somebody who's got an event going on. Yeah. Uh, about apprenticeships. About apprenticeships and how people can learn more about accessing them. Yeah, so come back. Stay tuned. For a very long time, internships have been the foot in the door for young job seekers. They can be a great opportunity, but they can also lead to exploitation, and once they're over, there's no guarantee of a job. For an even longer time, apprenticeships have been the path to professional success. Think the sorcerer's apprentice. Okay, that didn't work out so well, but still. Apprenticeships, for some reason, fell out of favor, but they're making a comeback, and they're working to help prepare people for more lucrative careers. To tell us more about their importance and about an upcoming event that will illuminate some opportunities in NYC, we're joined by Eli Dvorkin, 
the managing editor of the Center for an Urban Future, which is also organizing the event. Welcome back to 112B. Thank you so Eli. much. It's a pleasure to be back. It is a pleasure to have you. Eli, can you talk to me about the difference between internships and apprenticeships? Because I think people conflate the two a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, right off the bat, the biggest difference is that apprenticeships are designed so that you can earn while you learn. You know, mm -hmm. that's the idea. You know, internships in many cases are unpaid mm -hmm. or, you know, pay very little. So an apprenticeship is an opportunity to actually get paid while you're learning the tools of the trade. In addition, you know, a registered apprenticeship, a high-quality program, that's unregistered. These are programs that allow people to gain skills on the job while also learning in the classroom. And you put those things together to be able to actually acquire the skills you need to be able to succeed in that career. Does one of them exist at the expense of the other? internship and apprenticeship? No, I don't think so. I think the, the real opportunity for, for New York and for the country is to see apprenticeship as a new normal for uh, ac acquiring the skills necessary to succeed. Apprenticeships have been the norm in other countries. You know, right. in, in Germany, in Switzerland, you know, 60 or 70 percent of all young people in high school take an apprenticeship as part of their, their curriculum. We haven't done that in this country. It's starting to happen, and some states are making real strides on that. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't become normal the way that, you know, potentially getting an internship is seen as essential for, you know, having success in a career. Right. So what is the difference in what they look like? I would think, you know, not just in terms of getting paid. This is like really kind of a personal question for me. But what do they look like in terms of longevity? Do people who take internships usually end up still in the same industry? Or is it more likely to happen when you have an apprenticeship? Because it seems to me like one leads to lifelong work and the other is sort of like a, oh, let's see if I like this. Yeah, I think there's definitely some truth in that. You know, yeah. I'm not knocking internships. Right. I mean, <laughs> no matter what, you know, especially for young people, having right. an opportunity to learn in a work environment is crucial, you know, to understand even just what makes you tick, what you're passionate right. about, and to gain not only the sort of the skills, the specific job-related skills, but kind of the soft skills that make you someone who can really succeed in the workplace. So both of these programs are essential. You know, we need internships, but we, we can see apprenticeships as kind of an enhanced version, something that offers more. Certainly, I think you can't underestimate how important the pay component is. Oh, you know? absolutely. But it also means a level of training that goes a lot beyond what most internships can offer. Um, right. You know, typically, you know, from one year to multiple years, you know, graduated in a way where there's specific skills that you're building along the way, mm -hmm. and crucially, that end up with some kind of industry-recognized credential. So you, you leave that apprenticeship, and you are instantly employable, ideally. Um, in an internship, you're definitely building crucial job skills, you're gaining critical work experience, but it doesn't necessarily lead to a specific occupation, specific job the way that an apprenticeship can. Absolutely. This is something that actually is really interesting to me in terms of the demographics and statistics, right? Because I work in media, and so many media internships are unpaid and also require you being in New York City yep. and living in New York City to be able to do those things. And I often wonder what would be possible for somebody who was a teen like me who didn't have access to, you know, money or family who lived here or any of those things? Does an apprenticeship help correct that inequality? 
It's a great question. Uh, first of all, absolutely it can. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think there's a couple things to sort of be said about this to right. kind of establish the sort of the groundwork here. You know, mm -hmm. one of those things is that apprenticeships can help employers build much more diverse workforces. You know, there's no question. Right. I mean, the barriers to entry, just starting with a college degree, you know, mm -hmm. and the expense and the time that goes into that, you know, let alone the kind of network of connections, of sort of social connections and also professional connections that give, you know, so many New Yorkers with certain sets of privileges a leg up and keep other New Yorkers from having access to those opportunities. Right. Apprenticeships, you know, are at, at their best are designed to be able to break through some of those barriers. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's huge benefits to people that may not have had those opportunities otherwise. But we haven't invested in apprenticeships in a big way here. You know, right. this has not been the focus, um, not just in New York, but nationally. It hasn't really been how the United States has, has invested in the workforce. Um, frankly, we haven't invested in our workforce development system nearly enough for decades. Right. But this is one of those opportunities where New York actually could really come out ahead. And we haven't right. gotten there yet. But we could. We absolutely and could. There's sort of like there are at least two ways that you guys are working on this. One of them is the state of work report, mm -hmm. and the other is an event you're having this weekend. So we actually are having an event in July. In so July. So two there weeks we from now. The report that we're working on isn't out yet, but I can give you kind right. of a taste of it. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that. So, you know, we're, there's a couple things that stood out to us when we started looking at apprenticeships. You mm -hmm. know, one was that uh, when it comes to New York State in particular, we haven't necessarily made a lot of progress in recent years. You right. know, the Obama administration kicked off a big push to make apprenticeships a much bigger part of the national workforce development system. Mm -hmm. And they've had a lot of success, you know, but where we've seen some states, like let's say South Carolina, quintuple the number of apprenticeships since 2011, mm -hmm. New York has maybe added about 2% to their total, you know? Wow. So we haven't necessarily gotten there yet. Now, the governor's made some real announcements and put some money behind this recently. That's really exciting to see. Um, New York City has just announced Apprentice NYC, you know, mm -hmm. a goal to create 450 apprenticeships over the next three years. So these are absolutely steps in the right direction. Right. But we're starting from a place where we haven't made a ton of progress yet. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a, less than 17,000 apprenticeships in New York State today. Wow. You know, we're one of the biggest states, obviously, in the country. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> with, um, you know, a labor force of almost 10 million people, that's not a lot, you know. The other thing that we found was that, crucially, the number of apprenticeships in New York City is even less than that. You know, I mean, we have over four and a half million jobs just here in the city. Right. You know, it's like half of all the jobs in the state. But we found that New York City actually only has about 11 percent of the registered apprenticeships in the state. Why so is other, that? it's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're not totally sure yet. Right. Uh, I think part of it is that we haven't seen an expansion of apprenticeships outside of the building trades. Mm. You know, and this is not a knock on the building trades apprenticeships. These are some of the most powerful tools of economic mobility in the state. Um, you know, being able to get uh, a job as an electrician, as a plumber, you know, in the, these sorts of occupations. This has long been a major springboard opportunity, and we should be doing more of that too. Mm -hmm. But I think the difference is that New York City is where we've seen all of this growth outside of the building trades and in other parts of the economy where apprenticeships right. could be part of the, the solution, mm -hmm. but that's what we haven't seen yet. Now, we were only able to identify just a handful of apprenticeship programs outside of the building trades, mm -hmm. um, you know, serving maybe a few dozen apprentices a year in New York City. Wow, today. a few dozen? A few in dozen. In New York City? With four and a half million jobs. So, which makes me then wonder, why do companies not really understand how to integrate an, an apprenticeship versus an internship like it seems to me like you would be creating your own workforce and people who were trained to work 
in the exact way that you need them to work. Seems pretty cost effective, or is that? I no, mean, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, the studies that are out there bear that out completely. You know, right. the return on investment for apprenticeships is good. It's really good. I mean, mm-hmm. looking at you know a dollar thirty-two or a dollar thirty-seven per dollar spent on apprenticeships. That was one study from a few years ago. I'm um, mm-hmm. just looking at the return on investment for companies. But it goes beyond that, of course. It's a chance for chance for companies to actually diversify their workforces in a major way. Right. You know, I would argue that if companies want to be successful in the years ahead, they're going to have to make diversity a core part of their business. Mm-hmm. It's not only the right thing to do for New York City and for businesses, but it's, I think, the business case is really strong. It's, it's yes. absolutely unavoidable that, you know, companies that are able to create workforces that resemble the diversity of this city and this country are going to thrive, and companies that don't are going to lose out in the years ahead, you know? So apprenticeships can be a huge part of that solution. Absolutely. In the minute we have left, can you really quickly tell me about this event that you guys are going to be having and how it's going to address some of these Sure. Things? Well, we're bringing together a couple of those really exciting programs that are actually taking steps outside of the building trades and showing the possibility for more diverse apprenticeships. You know, Mm -hmm. we're working on this event with Barclays, which has launched an apprenticeship program with Perscolis, you know, a fantastic tech training organization based Mm -hmm. in the Bronx. Um, We're also going to have representatives of 1199 SEIU there who started a community health worker apprenticeship um, with Bronx Lebanon Hospital, Mm -hmm. um, a really exciting, you know, foray into healthcare uh, jobs. So we're going to bring everybody there together to talk about what's the opportunity for New York. And I think our idea is that New York City should become the leading hub of apprenticeship in the nation. But what will it take for us to get there? Eli Dvork, thank you so much for being here and for talking about this with us. Thank you so much. I can't tell you. Ah, I'm just, I'm very excited about this. I love the idea of apprenticeship. So thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. While you were gone, rum has arrived. We have a good reason for this. June is National Caribbean American Heritage Month. It has been for the last dozen years since it was declared by George W. Bush, who recognized the vast achievements of Americans of Caribbean descent, Caribbean descent, like his one-time Secretary of State Colin Powell. There's also Derek Walcott and Shirley Chisholm, to name just two more. But aside from politics and literature, another notable Caribbean contribution has been rum. To talk about its history and heritage and a new brand from Haiti that is distributed here in Brooklyn, we're joined by Garcel Menos, brand ambassador for Bookman Rum. Welcome to 112VK. Thank you for having me. And Adrian Keo, one of the founding partners. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to be here. So, Adrian, tell us how you got involved in this rum. You are from Ireland. Correct. How did yes. you find your way great. to the sugarcane fields of heat? Well, it started with booze. My background is in Irish whiskey once upon a time. Mm-hmm. And then I, I started traveling and moved to France and worked in cognac. And ended up working then in Cuban rum. Wow. Havana Club. And along the way, uh, when I arrived in France 17 years ago, I joined an organization called IT Futur, mm-hmm. which is an education organization focused on Haiti. During my first day in France, I met the founder, a lady called Josette, an amazing, powerful woman. Uh, her dad was a cane cutter in Haiti. Mm-hmm. Uh, she uh, teaches innovation and entrepreneurship in the Sorbonne. And she created this education organization, which mm-hmm. I've been supporting for yeah, 17, 18 years now. And about four years ago, I put my professional interest in booze with my personal interest in Haiti together to create uh, Bookman Botanical Rum. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
that's a that's a lot. Like you like that's a whole journey. It's a whole lifetime. That is a lifetime of spirits, and I'm really into it. Garcelle, tell us about the name of the rum. It's based on a real revolutionary figure in Haiti, right? Um, one of the first one revolutionary the first. figures in Haiti. So his name is Dutsy Bookman. He was a Jamaican-born slave from a mother from West Africa. And in Jamaica, he was extremely rebellious, both him and his mother. His mother gave him her rebellious spirit. And as punishment to both his mother and himself. They separated They separated him from his mother and sent him to one of the worst plantations in the West at the time. That was called Saint-Domingue, but we now know it as Haiti. There, he, through his charismatic storytelling, um, he was a voodoo priest, so with the blessings of the ancestors running through his blood, you know, he was able to gain hundreds of people to share his rebellious attitude. That's the name Dutty Bookman. That's where it comes from. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, that is fresh. That, and that's probably the rum we need right now, to be perfectly <laughs> honest around here. Right? So, <laughs> Adrian, what is botanical rum exactly, and how is that different from more popular rums? Well, the, the really interesting, compelling thing about rum in Haiti is that it's made in a different way from most other places. It follows the kind of French-language tradition of making rum from the fresh juice of sugar cane, mm-hmm. um, freshly pressed, like a fruit juice, as opposed to from molasses, which is what all the, the 99% of the world's rum is made from. So when you press it close to the cane fields, you get this very herbaceous juice. Uh, you ferment that, and then you distill it into rum. It's a very dry, grassy style. And then in Haiti, the particular thing they do is they infuse it with a series of barks and botanicals, and that gives it a lot of extra complexity and dryness. So, yeah, those are the botanicals, and rum with an H is the French way of spelling rum, so it says this is dry, no sugar added. Are these some of those barks and botanicals? Yes, indeed. This is a selection kind of straight from Haiti. So they have some exotic names like compeche. And that one's kind uh, of reddish, brown. Red. There's a lot of color, known as bloodwood in English. Right. Um, you've got zo de vent, uh, very bitter, only small amounts. Yeah, it wars off like Zika. <laughs> yeah. Everything else looks like flavor, and those, the little ones, I'm like, nah, those are just sticks. You're playing with but me. But they're packed with so much earthy flavor. Mm-hmm. We got Yam Bondé, which mm-hmm. is uh, Haitian Viagra. Oh, wow. Um, we got Bois Cochon. And we got Bitter Orange Peel, which is a really amazing Haitian ingredient. Uh, all the flavor in Grand Manier orange liqueur comes from the oranges from Haiti. Okay, so I, I want to try this now because I'm looking at <laughs> these sticks and I've already smelled this. And, you know, actually, full disclosure, I've got some of this at home. And I love it. Okay, I'm just going to put that out there already. But I'm also ready to taste it with y'all as well. Okay. So let's start with neat. Yes. Yes. And we're just going to taste the rum and see what it tastes like, even though, to be perfectly honest, Ashley already knows it's good. (laughs) (laughs) There you are. Yeah. And, uh, you know... Something that I've actually really been curious about is the bottle. Because when I saw this bottle in the store, I was like, at first, it wasn't even just about the rum. I was like, oh, I like that bottle. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at it, and I was like, oh, I want this. But is there something about this design, or is it just something that 
came up with because it looks so unique and beautiful. The green glass and like the paper on the front that sort of looks like parchment. Like I love it. It looks very old world. Well, talk a bit about the bottle. The color is the color that stands out a lot in Haiti. Mm -hmm. So between the clothes, the homes, and of course the water, it's this turquoise, this bright blue that stands out at you. So that was like the base for the design of the bottle. And then um, talking about the paper, the labeling, um, part of Detti Bookman's, his revolutionary prayer was uh, listen to the voice of freedom rising in our hearts. That's how he concluded the prayer. And here we put it on the bottle, actually, to pay wow. homage to and keep the connection strong to Haiti, to represent the edginess, the fierceness, and the strength in Haitian culture. Oh, my gosh. I All right, let's take a drink. Yes. Santé, as we say in French. Santé. Santé. <laughs> Just... Okay, can I say why I like this <laughs> really quickly? Talk to us. Because I really want to. Okay, I am really, really sensitive to alcohol. I don't like a lot of alcohols. I can't drink a lot of things neat because I'm, I feel like they overpower me. And this, never. It goes down so smooth. It tastes so good. And my fiancé, who actually really is more of a person who would sit down and drink, a, you know, some rum neat or whatever, he loves it as well. And we have completely different palates, and we agree on this rum. Like, it's, what is that? Like, why does it go, it goes over my tongue, and then it comes back out through my nose. Like, I just feel this warmth. Like, what is that? I guess it's just alcohol. <laughs> Ooh, this is the Haitian terroir there. Yeah. Well. It's coming through. It's the land of Haiti. Yes. And the, the hands of the people who make it uh, that make the difference. Mm -hmm. It's it, like, okay, I'm just, that's an explanation, but I'm like, mm. uh, Garcelle, can we talk a little bit about you? Because you really represent the next generation of Haitian Americans. Tell us a little about how you came to be involved with Bookman. Well, uh, my I always loved booze growing up. And yeah. <laughs> growing up, first-generation Haitian, even as a child, they'll give you just a little sip to try some some moonshine or clarin, mm -hmm. as it's called in the Creole, or some cremas. So I always loved booze from an early age. I don't know if I should be saying that. No, say that. Um, <laughs> and then as I grew up, I was bartending. I've been bartending for the past six years now. And I fell in love with rum working at a rum bar. The mm -hmm. different styles, you know, the terroir, how every culture does it differently because all I knew was Klan or Haitian rum. Right. So learning about the different rums, I got like super involved, extremely nerdy about it. And then, <laughs> you know, I saw this bottle and I was like, Haitian rum, you know, Bamba Core has only has been the export since 1862. Right. You know, it's all anyone knows. And I'm like, there's something new on the market. I have to get involved and figure out who is making it. And by happenstance, Adrian kind of found me. <laughs> oh, I love so that. that's how I got involved. I love that. Can you, okay, so in addition to this, we're going to have a cocktail. Yes, we are. We're going to have a Bookman Signature Summer Cocktail. Mm -hmm. um, it is called Salt Dew or Waterfall, and we call it Salt Dew because it's made with coconut water and just a squeeze of lime, um, and it's refreshing like a waterfall. It feels like you are drinking a waterfall, from, like you're drinking from Basson Blue, you I'm know? So <laughs> so. One of Haiti's famous waterfalls. Yes. Yeah, Vodou waterfalls. Yes. You have Vodou ceremonies at these waterfalls. They're very holy places, oh um, but very happy places, too. So, yeah. This sounds amazing. <laughs> okay, while she's making that... That's the show for today. Thank you for joining us. Next week, we're back for part of the week. Hey, July 4th falls right in the middle, so I'm sorry about that. 
With more on the Supreme Court situation, plus the state attorney general situation, the affordable housing situation, and the situation of our nation 242 years after independence. See you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasak and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leith, and Sasha Mathias.